Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to What's Important Now, the podcast from the United States Border Patrol Academy, where we talk about things that are important to the men and women of the United States Border Patrol throughout law enforcement, their families, and those we serve. Now, we've been highlighting during the month of March special women in our lives in celebration of Women's History Month. And there's a very particular category that I have been trying to highlight especially as it relates to the women that have served in the ranks of the United States Border Patrol, and that is the trailblazers. That's the women that have actually set the path for others to follow and actually uh, blazed that trail for other young women to follow in their footsteps, made things possible to where we are today. We have in our ranks many women that uh, they go out and protect this country and keep it safe each and every day. That wasn't always the case. There had to be somebody that broke the mold. There had to be somebody that set that path. We have one of those folks with us today. We have retired Chief Patrol Agent Lynn Underdown. Chief, thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Chief. I'm delighted. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, let me tell you a little bit about Chief Underdown, folks, and I refer to her as Chief because she retired as a Chief Patrol Agent, and that is an honorary title that a person by right gets to carry with them, even into retirement. So for forever, she will be a Chief in our eyes. Chief Underdown started in the United States Border Patrol back in 1980, and she was a member of Class 140. Now, to give you a little bit of uh, perspective, here at the Academy, we have Class 1167 on site right now, 1,167. Chief Underdown came in in Class uh, 140. In September of 1980, she served in the U.S. Border Patrol for 26 years. Chief, I ask this of everybody, so I don't mean to put you on the spot. Do you remember your class chant? To be honest, Chief, I don't know that we had an actual chant. Oh, fair I point. I think, yeah, we, that was also before we had uh, flags. We didn't have, we did not have flags at that time either. Wow. So okay, so that was even before the guidons were were a thing, and before we had class chants. That's that's interesting. I did not know. I learned something new today. So, when you went through, then it was was it in Glencoe, Georgia, as well. Yes, yes, sir. Glencoe, Georgia. Okay, so that's, that tells you just the experience and, and the time frame that Chief Underdown went through. So during her career, 26 years she spent with us after graduating from Class 140, and first person I've ever talked to that didn't remember their class chant, and that makes sense because she didn't have one. <laughs> so so she, she bounced around to uh, San Diego. She was in Yuma. She was in El Paso. She was in New Orleans. She was in Miami. She was in the Rio Grande Valley. She has absolutely been there and done that. And what's more interesting, her career started before there was a Department of Homeland Security. She started when the Border Patrol was part of the Immigration and Naturalization Service under the Department of Justice. And, Chief, by way of perspective, you actually served in the ranks of the Border Patrol when it was INS and then when it was DHS, and you had a very key role in that transition. Let's talk a little bit about the INS days when the Border Patrol was part of the Immigration and Naturalization Service. Let's talk a little bit about what the Border Patrol was like in 1980 when you joined. Tell us a little bit about what it was like being a, a woman coming into the patrol in that time. Well, I came in, as we discussed, in September of 1980, but... There is a somewhat interesting story about that happened for me. I grew up uh, on the south side of Chicago, and as you can imagine, we do not have uh, any type of border patrol function there. The closest location would be Detroit, but I had no exposure to that. My father was career Chicago PD, and my mother was uh, an English major 
much to my chagrin for all of high school. <laughs> but she taught me how to write. And I had graduated from college, 1979. I had a degree in criminology, and I had minored in Spanish. And my father, in the course of his duties with Chicago PD, had been assigned to a task force. And he became friends with a customs supervisor. And as most of us do, you talk about your kids at work. And he told my father that, well, if your daughter's just graduated from school, she, it sounds like, with her back on, she really should think about the Border Patrol. And my father said, well, you know, tell me a little bit more about that. So he did. He came home to tell me. And, of course, my first question was, well, what exactly is the Border Patrol? Because I had no experience with it. We talked a little bit. And about a month later, this would have been June, July, 1979, the supervisor told my father they were going to be offering the Border Patrol test. Now, at that time... The Border Patrol test and the Customs Patrol test were the same test. So I went to take it, and probably a few months later, and near the end of the year, I got a phone call. I was working part-time in an office at the time. I got a phone call from Customs say, offering me a job. And I said, well, what exactly are we doing? We had a little bit of a chat, and I said, uh, they said, you can have a couple days, call us back. So three days later... I get a call from the Border Patrol offering me a position uh, as a trainee. And my, I believe my salary was going to be $11,686. Wow. A year. Which, yeah, a year. <laughs> a year, <laughs> yeah. Of course, at that time, if you do the math, but it was, it was a foot in the door to a federal job. I know we've all heard that story before. And I really did need a job. So I had this discussion with the woman from the Border Patrol Hiring Center, and I said, well, do you have any idea where I might be working? And they said, yes, we can tell you exactly. It would be in Chula Vista, California. And honestly, Chief, all I had to hear was the word California, and, and I was in. I, I had been shoveling snow most of my life and cold, <laughs> and the idea of working in California was so exciting to me, and they said, well, you will be outside a lot. You'll probably be driving a Jeep, and, and I was all in. I was absolutely all in, and they also said, we'll give you a couple days, but you need to call back by Friday, let's say. So I subsequently had a follow-up call with the woman from Customs, and I was very transparent with her, and I said, well, I have also gotten a call from the Border Patrol, and they offered me this position and told me I was going to be stationed in Chula Vista, California. And I said, could you please give me an idea of where I'll be stationed? And she said, wherever we want to send you. And I thought, okay. And I'm listening. And she said, you're thinking about going into the Border Patrol? And I said, yes, ma'am. It sounds like something I'd like to do, and it's a good fit for me. And she actually said, well, you're not going to make it in the Border Patrol as a woman. Wow. Decision made. So... I called the Border Patrol people back and said, um, I'm in. So probably, it was a while then. It was probably another six or seven months before I got my, my orders to report to Chula Vista. I had no idea where that was. My father had been in the Navy, so he was very familiar with San Diego. So he said, I'm pretty sure that's near San Diego. Uh, took out a map, had to try and find it, uh, and eventually reported reported for duty. There were five other women in my class, which at that time was a lot. 
uh, we all graduated. Uh, actually, I believe four of us were in the top ten in the class. So we did very, very, very well as far as supporting each other. And I was just in a class with some of the brightest, most incredible people I have ever met. And we really supported one another. So reporting for graduate, report for duty, and we worked at a very small station that is no longer there, eventually became Imperial Beach. But at that time, it was just Chula Vista. It was in a small building right near the southbound gate uh, into Tijuana in San Ysidro. It was called 819 at the time. Eventually became 831, but 819. And at that point, Chief, I have to say, I really think the stars started to align for me because as is commonly the procedure, I was assigned a field training officer. And the luck of the draw there was incredible because I got two people who were just fantastic, Ed Head and Mike Blizzard. Now, I don't know if you know Ed, but he is an accomplished uh, shooting instructor, amazing person. And Mike was a very methodical person, and they walked us through everything. They were very big on helping us appreciate, and this is before the term was very common, actually, what happened left a boom and what you could expect and all the information you should be gathering before you even, even think about getting in your vehicle to go out in the field, talk to the people on the off-going shift, et cetera, et cetera, because quite frankly, at that time, intelligence was basically conversations, and, and that was all we had. So, Chief, if I can so just, be, before, okay. sorry to interrupt you real quick, but I want to put that in perspective. So you've said a couple things already. So start off with, you had a another female that you were talking to with the Customs Service at the time, part of the hiring center, but heard that you wanted to go into the Border Patrol and just basically was shocked and said, there's no way you'll make it. And you said... Challenge accepted, and you said decision made, and that uh, that did it for you. You joined the Border Patrol. Then you talked about going to uh, to San Diego sector, and what is now the Imperial Beach Station, and you you described it as a small station. That is a massive station now, a very major station, especially in the '90s, was just one of the busiest places in the country. Now has hundreds of agents assigned to it. What did that look like whenever you went when you first got there? How many agents were assigned there? I believe uh, well again because when it was still Chula Vista Station, we didn't have an ID at the time. That was later in 1985. So I believe at the time, well, my star number was 271. So that gives you an idea of how big the station was. So this, if you had never been there, I wish I could try to think of something that was similar, but I have been in your HEX building because my husband and I were in Artesia at one time. The, the headquarters if for the academy. something about one-tenth the size of your HEX building. So really, like just a small office. One of us were working out of. Wow. Okay, so not, not much in the way of infrastructure. And, and it, how busy was that area in San Diego during that time? Oh, it, it was incredibly busy. Now, you have to keep in mind, in that particular area, we, of course, our area of responsibility for, for us began pretty much at the south Southbound Gate, as I described, called W2, and went all the way out to the beach, which was referred to as W15. And it was nonstop, it was a nonstop track meet every single 
And, and the people that hear that now, when they when they look at what's going on on the border today, uh, right. predominantly what uh, what you were arresting back then, you you had mostly single adults coming through, and and most of them were from Mexico, correct? This is correct, right? And so, it, but the processing of those individuals was a lot different than what they're seeing, what what they have to do today. So the the numbers, uh, you know, staggering back in in, in that time and, and in the '90s as well, with uh, in San Diego with with what you uh, all were dealing with, that has continued throughout the years. We've had different surges for different reasons, but the, the populations have certainly been different. Important to remember the evolution of the organization and, and how we have actually processed and the way that we, uh, the way that we run record checks. And, and that didn't always happen for uh, the folks that we apprehended back in those days. Is that right? Correct. And we had, of course, like every station, you have different people that really take an interest in, uh, they come, they become experts on certain things. And we had a couple of uh, agents that worked at the station that just loved intelligence. And they would make three-by-five cards of the, the people that they discerned were guides, the people that they discerned were smugglers, commonly popped load cars, all of those things. And when we would get a load or have a group of people that clearly, and perhaps there were OTMs mixed in, clearly had to have a guide for us to have apprehended them where we did, we would go into the file cabinet and go through and read these three-by-five cards. And that's such a great point. a picture of whether or not they were part of this organization, that organization, et cetera, et cetera. So it was it was the beginning of the really spectacular system that we have now. But it started very, very, very basic, very meticulous, very thorough, and done by some very dedicated people. But it started very basic. And chief, when, when, and that's that's a great point because you're talking about three by five cards that were handwritten, and you're talking about when pictures were taken, maybe Polaroids, the ones that were the instant uh, instant cameras that would uh, would develop right then if you shook the if you shook the picture for a little bit, it would develop faster. And then there was no no databases, no computers. You're talking carbon copy triplicate forms that you either did handwriting or if you were lucky enough to have a typewriter. That was your database and systems of record of the day, right? Absolutely. And if we wanted to run a check, we used to call something called an epic check, which was calling the information center in El Paso to get uh, information on people who perhaps had a smuggling conviction or, or something of that nature that we could tie into a case. And that was by phone. We didn't have faxes, certainly no Internet. It was uh, just a completely different world. So when you put that into perspective with the number of people that you were arresting on per shift, that that's difficult in its own right because the processing is a lot more difficult. You To be able to organize and reference and store the information, you said file cabinet. So you had to do a lot of legwork, a lot of actual uh, research yourself, it wasn't just at your fingertips. If you wanted to find out if the person you were dealing with had a criminal record or if they were a person of interest. Oh, absolutely. You did have to do the legwork. There was no question about it. But as you can imagine, when you work in an area for a long period of time and with people that you know well, you you basically begin to share information. And we would come in on our shift 
and there was a very small hallway where the processing tables were. You would stand there, and about six feet away is where the detention cells were. And it wasn't uncommon for somebody to come in for the next shift and, and basically stop and say, wait a second, I had that guy last night. But he used a different name. That type of thing, it, it really was about the, the power of human observation more than anything else. And in and information sharing uh, between the agents. It, honestly, it was something to see. And if you wanted to do uh, record checks on somebody, which other than doing an epic check, if you uh, wanted to run somebody's fingerprints, for example, how, how would you have gone about that? You uh, Well, we used uh, epic for that as well, and you could make a call to get a fingerprint check, uh, but that probably would not come back until the next day. And by then, of course, that person had probably been released and gone. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. If you didn't already have some type of reason for a custodial situation, what we used to call a debt proc, which, of course, is quite different now because they, we have MTAs, but a reason that you knew you were going to be processing them to be taken into custody, then perhaps not getting the notification the next day wasn't going to be a problem, but it, it could be. It very much could be. And you're talking about a time when, again, this was under the Immigration and Naturalization Service when Border Patrol's primary mission was immigration-related. That's completely changed today. But most of what was done then was immigration-related. You also had some narcotics uh, seizures during that time. That was, I would say, probably the two biggest things that the, uh, the Border Patrol dealt with in that time period. Is that, is that true? Yes, I would say absolutely that's true. What you did see, Chief... And people who worked at that time will tell you, as the different Border Patrol sectors almost took on different personalities, depending on where you worked, the demographic and the type of traffic and contraband you were seeing would change. In Chula, we saw, as you could imagine, lots and lots of people, well, more likely because we were in such proximity to Tijuana and the organizations that work there. Of course, if you were in Tucson, um, as is very much the case, and even in the Valley at that time, they saw a lot more as far as narcotics goes. And that just depended on which portion of the cartel had control on the south side of the border from wherever you were working. It really was determined on uh, the organizations that were working on the south side. Man, that sounds familiar even uh, to today, really. So your cartels, even back then, controlled different areas of the border. They had different types of traffic, and they had different uh, tactics, techniques, and procedures, even in the 80s. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and they built off that because, as you can imagine, the topography in great deal drove the type of traffic. Uh, they, you know, hiking... Lots of people, well, back then anyway, through the mountains and some of that area that borders San Diego and El Centro uh, with people that might have been a little more problematic for them. So maybe they went more with uh, narcotics. It, it really just depended on the organization. So I want to go back to one of the things that you said here earlier that I referenced. You talked about uh, you, you accepted a challenge because somebody told you there's no way you'll make it in the Border Patrol. Can you kind of encapsulate, give us a sense of what was it like being a woman 
joining the Border Patrol during that? Was it was it welcoming? Did you have uh, obstacles that you remember? What was it like? Well, I was very fortunate. Um, I mentioned my field training officers, but they were very specific to same job, same pay, same badge. So we expect you to do exactly the same thing as, as everyone else, which we already knew. And I think the one thing about the Border Patrol that is really unlike any other federal agency um, then and now is that we have the same standard for the men and the women. And number one, that's why everybody wants the Border Patrol agents because of our world-class training. And number two, there is something to be said for when they pin that badge on you in graduation that you did the work to get there identically to every other person that was graduating that day. Was it easy? No. Were there challenges? Yes. I know certain people have had different experiences. Mine, you know, my story or my experiences, and I got quite a bit of support from everybody that I was working with. I will say one thing, a kind of an interesting moment. I was probably 1984. I had been a post-academy instructor, which I thoroughly enjoyed, and then I rotated out of that detail and came back to the field. And at that time, women, two women were not allowed to ride in a vehicle together. It just wasn't done. It wasn't what you would call a paper policy, but it simply wasn't done. And well, for a couple of reasons, perhaps there were not even two women on the unit, but I think there was just kind of a paradigm there that they weren't ready to revisit. And I went to my supervisor, Jim Bradshaw, who was a great mentor to me, and at the beginning of the shift, and I said, Jim, Ann, who was, I'll just leave her name at that, who was also on the unit, I said, Ann and I want to work together and go out and work the trolley, or whatever the case it was. He said, sure, no problem. You know, grab a couple cars, just make sure you cover each other, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, no, we want to be put on the 481 as riding in the vehicle together. And he turned her out at his desk, and he had these reading glasses, and he looked up, and he just kind of looked. <laughs> and it probably was only about five seconds, but it seemed like forever. And then he said, okay. And that was it. And we got to go put our name on the 481 together, riding in the same vehicle, and that had never happened before. And history was made right then and there. Well, you just never know when the moments are going to present themselves, Chief. That's that's amazing. That that that's that's such a neat story to hear. And of course, and so from that point on, that certainly today, very common. That's not even an issue. There's, <laughs> it's not even. We refer to the the women in the border patrol as the fearless five percent because it, historically it's been around five percent. And what you hit on with the with the standards being the same and the challenges, I guarantee, knowing you, you wouldn't have wanted it any other way. You wouldn't have accepted it any other way. Oh no. And my father taught me that um, when I was going for my hiring panel review. And, of course, he didn't know the operations of the Border Patrol either. And he said, the only advice I'm going to give you is that they are going to be watching your behavior more than they are going to be listening to how accurate your technical knowledge is of what they do. They know you don't know that, but they're going to be watching how you comport yourself. And, and I've never forgotten that. And I think that's applicable throughout everything that we do. It very, very much is about how you behave, 
your officer presence, and I learned that very early on. And if, I mean, I was always taught if you don't work for it, you will not respect it in the long run. And people are not going to respect you either because you wear that every day when you work. And I think that definitely uh, proved to be a great strategy for you, just looking at your career. I haven't even touched on some of your uh, your accolades here, and I, I want to talk a little bit about those right now. So when it was INS, you actually got, rose to the rank of district director uh, for the for the New Orleans area. And then you became the very first chief patrol agent, the very first female chief patrol agent that the Border Patrol ever had when you assumed command in, uh, in Miami, Florida, and then Rio Grande Valley. Is that correct? Yes, sir. That is correct. And, and for people who perhaps do not know what the district director position was, again, at that time, the Border Patrol and the other immigration-related functions were all under the organizational structure of the INS. And the district director, if you imagine a person who has oversight of detention and removal, all the operations at the port, uh, investigations, and benefit applications, as well as mission support, all of those people reported to the district director. And at that time, uh, when I was the district director in New Orleans, I was in charge of six states. So it kept us very, very busy. And um, also, most people know my spouse and I were both had careers. So this is where actually my career took a very interesting turn, uh, more specific to the question that you just posed to me. Mike and I, my spouse, we always thought and we had always hoped that we were both going to be able to achieve what we wanted to achieve. I never really bought into, and either did he, that one person had to pick to have the career and the other person could not. I've asked why quite a bit. I just wanted to understand, well, why does it have to be me? Or why does it have to be him? Why can't it be both of us? Because we both aspired to do this, and we've both been down the career track. And it has not been easy, but we had a plan, and we planned to execute it. But when I was in New Orleans, I was already a 15 a GS-15 at that point, when the opportunity in Miami came up. Now, it was not lost on me what the potential was going to be if I got that position and I was successful. Because I was a 15 and so was Miami at the time, I was automatically qualified, and they had just introduced the in-basket exercise. It had never been done before, but... I wasn't required to do it because I was already operating at that level, and I'd been a 15 for a couple of years, but I took it anyway because I knew when I was going to walk in there, I really knew what was on the line, Chief. I had a huge appreciation for what was going to happen, and I understood that perhaps they were going to make a different decision, but I knew when I went in to interview for that job, I I couldn't just be a candidate. I had to go in as a competitor. There were no other options. I had to put it all on the table and say, I know I wasn't required to take this in basket, but I took it anyway, and this is how I did. I wasn't really competing against the other people that wanted that job. I was really 
in my mind, more competing against a lot of assumptions, a lot of history, and frankly, their comfort zone. And for those that I don't know, to, I, I, I want... I needed to change their minds, Chief. I needed to show them that equal doesn't have to mean identical, that that's, I could do this. That's very well just put. Just as well or better than anybody else, that it was up to me to make that case. And, and I went in feeling that way. And uh, I had a tremendous opportunity, and I just that was the honor of my life. That was the honor of my life to to become that person, to become that person for the Border Patrol and for so many other people that have worked very hard to support me. So we've talked about two different moments in history where you have broke the mold for the United States Border Patrol. Uh, two women being allowed to go out on patrol together in the same vehicle, which today seems ridiculous that that would even be a, 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 an afterthought. <laughs> but but in nineteen in the 1980s, it was. And, and you, you blazed that trail for uh, for every woman that came after you in the United States Border Patrol. And then to be the first chief patrol agent in the history of our organization, which was groundbreaking for obvious reasons. You mentioned the the end basket, and I want to make sure everybody understands what that was, that, that the test that you had to take that basically – it uh, puts your organizational skills and your prioritization skills to the test. And it was something that you didn't have to do because you were already a GS-15, basically trying to get another GS-15 position. But you chose to do that, basically, it sounds like, to take away any reason they could possibly have to say no. You wanted to be a, a competitor to the point where they had no choice but to take you seriously and look at you seriously for that job. That's, a, that's exactly right, Chief. I did not want to give them an opportunity to say no. You just, I, a long time ago, a very wise person told me, and it was stellar advice, I've never forgotten it, you have to be so damn good that they can't look past you. <laughs> Those are great words. The absolute truth. Forgive the vernacular there. No, absolutely, absolutely. So, so then, okay, so... History's made there, and you obviously your your career was just stellar, and and you went from Miami to the Rio Grande Valley, and I believe there's where you became a member of the Senior Executive Service. Is that right? Yes, sir. That's where I became an SES. And first female SES in the Border Patrol. Yes. So there's a third time history has been made by this uh, this young lady, this uh, this chief patrol agent that. Uh, not many people have had the privilege of, uh, of getting to know, and, and you are getting the opportunity here today, ladies and gentlemen. This, there, here, here's somebody for our organization, for the United States Border Patrol, that has done this much. So the very first female senior executive service member, the very first chief patrol agent in the United States Border Patrol, the very first person to make it where two females go out on patrol together in the same vehicle. This is the very definition of a trailblazer. And because of all that, because of her work ethic, and because of what everybody saw in her, after 9-11, as everybody knows, we went from the Immigration and Naturalization Service under the Department of Justice to the newly formed Department of Homeland Security. And it's funny, Chief, you talk about the, the fork in the road that you came to way back in the day where you could have been with Customs or you could have you know, been with the Border Patrol, and at the end of the day, you could have been in the same agency after 9-11 because... Customs and Border Protection, CBP, was formed under DHS and incorporated both organizations under this new entity. And you played a lead role in that transition. Tell us a little bit about that. I was actually very 
very honored, and you make a very interesting point. When this happened, it was almost as if I had come full circle from 1979 when I had had that conversation with the uh, woman who called me from the Customs Hiring Center. But I will tell you that I played a role, but the same as many, many of my colleagues, that we were, we were bringing the Border Patrol to a world that did not know it when DHS became, became an entity. The custom folks knew what we did, but they didn't, most of them anyway, really know many of, many of us personally and got a sense of what made us tick and what was important to us and things of that nature. So having the opportunity to represent the Border Patrol in that way was, to me, a career highlight. And as part of that, when I was in Miami, the DHS secretary at the time, our very first one, Tom Ridge, decided that he wanted to stand up a task force which was inclusive of all of the DH entities, of course, including the Coast Guard and us, the port investigations, uh, benefits, everything, to be able to stand up a task force that was completely integrated, completely, including air and marine assets, to respond to any type of emergency. Uh, in that particular case, it was to respond to a mass migration scenario, but it was called uh, Homeland Security Task Force Southeast, and the Coast Guard Admiral from District 7 was the commander, and I was his deputy commander, and as such, I was in charge of all the land-based enforcement operations. And this was quite something. And I, and I had been part of working on uh, several projects when I was uh, a chief in the Border Patrol and even when I was at the district office working with detention removal, about how we would handle these type of things. But when you think about integrating the complexities of what all of these agencies do, and, and let's be honest, Chief, this was a huge change. This was about leading people through this change and, and communicating day after day that, we're going to take you there. We understand everybody has questions, but this is our mission. So we're going to listen to the folks, respect their expertise, but we are driving towards this mission. And I've always been a very objective, driven person, but I, I'm also a huge fan of Norman Schwarzkopf. <laughs> and I have a favorite quote of his that talks about, he, I think it's something along the lines of, we, never, we should never forget that the, the tanks don't drive, the planes don't fly, the missiles don't get launched unless the sons and daughters of America make them do it. Wow. And having an appreciation for our people and giving them a mission that they could believe in and understand that everybody would have a role. And, and I really do believe that the work we did on that task force really developed a model for cooperation within the entire department. And, and it's been quite a long time. I mean, we did the brief to Secretary Ridge 
uh, and Commissioner Bonner and President Bush in July of 2003, we had 90 days to put this plan together, which was quite something. And I think that was probably intentional because it basically threw us all in there together and said, get it done, find the commonality, take advantage of your commonalities, bring your expertise to the table and get it done. And we did. And we had a great deal of success with it. it it's one of the highlights of my career. And and to that end, so you are one of the key stakeholders, the you know the founding member, if you will, of what the Department of Homeland Security is and has become today because of that work that uh, folks like you did on task forces like that, kind of defined the path forward for what DHS and all of the agencies that fall under it what they do to keep this country and its people safe day in and day out. That's something that uh, talk about a once in a lifetime experience. And, and you got to assume not just everybody was tapped on the shoulder for that kind of responsibility. And it says a lot about what they thought of you and the type of work that you did, that you were one of those folks. Well, I believe, and I think this is from the time you enter on duty, but most certainly as you promote and you're working through solving issues, et cetera. And for me, Command 101 Chief is you, you pass on the glory and you negotiate the problems for your people in the field. Amen. I also believe that it, it really is in great part that your, your success in this business is going to be determined, uh, be determined by the quality of your relationships. There are no exceptions. I think, I think that's great advice. Yeah, that really should, and that needs to go across component lines because you do not know where the next challenge is going to come from. You don't know where the next great idea is going to come from. It might not be from someone who works in your component. You know, they say that if you're in a room with people who look just like you and think just like you and you're problem solving, you're in the wrong room. That makes sense. So I believe I believe that these relationships are absolutely key to as, as people go through their career and grow and, and really attempt to solve problems on behalf of the men and women in the field because they need the green light to get the job done. You know, and it's our job in the command to make sure that the obstacles that could face them and keep them from doing that need to be negotiated. That's that's why they pay us what they pay us. That's why they've chosen us to do it. That's good. It's going to determine our success as an agency, really. Chief, so as, as I'm listening to you talk, and it, it reminds me of one of our, uh, our pillars of our mission statement here at the Academy, which is preserve our legacy. And that's one of the things that we try and still in each and every trainee that comes in is not just that they're going to be public servants, that they're going to be law enforcement officers, but they're going to be Border Patrol agents, and that carries with it a certain responsibility to carry forth that good work that have been done by the men and women like you that, that came before them to do right by those deeds and that justice, uh, do justice to the, uh, the work that you've done. And as people are listening today to everything that you did, that as you, as you blaze that trail, how important it is for you, is it for you, whenever you look at the trainees and the men and women of the Border Patrol today, that you're able to look at this organization with a sense of pride knowing that you were a part of it and that you helped make it what it, what it is today. Oh, absolutely. And if, and, if, and if I may, one thing 
a thought that I would like to leave with the folks that are out in the field or people that are aspiring into leadership, I would say be bold, think big. If there's an opportunity for you to take a temporary assignment or a detail and your first reaction when you look at it is, well, I don't really know anything about that, pick that one because you don't know what the possibilities are when you bring that experience back to the Border Patrol. Maybe it's something you never pictured yourself doing, and that's exactly where you need to be because our world is getting bigger by the minute, is it not? Yes. It's extremely complicated, and it's only going to get more complicated. And I really believe that if you want to be part of the leadership that takes the Border Patrol into the future, the key is having credibility, but even more so being able to influence other people's thinking. And without credibility, you have no shot whatsoever. But to be able to stand there and say, I'm a member of the Border Patrol, I, this is my organization, I also have taken steps to expand my thinking and my perspective and done these other things, and I've brought it back to the table just because I want to be able to take us to the next level. That is invaluable. You cannot put a price on something like that. So think big, be bold, and grab those opportunities where they present themselves. You will not regret it. And when you talk about credibility, great advice, Chief, the so credibility kind of goes to integrity, and that's uh, you know a big part of our mantra, our core values in CBP. The Border Patrol motto, of course, is honor first, and that's something that uh, more than just a tagline. I say it's it's something that that we live and breathe each and every day on and off duty. And one of the things when we talk to our trainees is that it has to carry special meaning for you. You have to think about what that guiding principle means to you so that you can live and breathe it each and every day. Honor First has been a part of your life for a long time now, and I know that it's important to you. Can you kind of encapsulate what that means when you hear those two words, when somebody says it to you or when you say it to somebody? What are you saying? What does it mean to you? To me, it is very much about the men and women who have come before us. And when we say honor first, we talk about the oath we took for our country and the oath, quite frankly, that we have taken to one another. Well, whether you're on the first day of your job or whether you're on the last day of your job, that is the very essence of who we are. And since you asked about this particular thing, Chief, I wanted to share something that happened to me on the last week of my career. About five days before I retired, we lost a pilot in the Rio Grande Valley. And, of course, all of the requisite responsibilities that go through that, dealing with the family, uh, it's, and, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I spoke to the men and women who were there in uniform at his services that day, and I, I actually became very close with his family. And I went back to the office to start packing some things up when everything had concluded. And as is very often the case, I was getting some 
emails from folks saying, thank you for the career, you know, congratulations, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the emails said, I'm so sorry that the last days of your career had to be so sad. And I thought about that for a very long time before I answered because I thought, really, what we do when we honor our men and women, when we lose them in that way, is really what the Border Patrol is all about. In a way that is difficult to fathom, it is our finest hour. What we give the families of these young men and women, these fallen heroes, they cannot get from any other source but the Border Patrol. We made that promise to them when we put that badge on them, that we would always take care of them and always take care of their families. So when I answered, I said, to be honest, I wouldn't have had it any other way. I wanted to remember my career doing what I swore that I would do and that I swore that I would do for the person standing beside me or sitting next to me in a vehicle or whatever the case may be. But that is what we are about. To me, that's what honor first means. Wow. I don't know that I've ever heard it captured uh, quite so well. That's an uh, amazing, amazing story, by the way, too. <laughs> Yet another to add to your collection. And I will say, uh, in, in continuing on, after Chief Underdown retired and left the service, and, and Chief, I believe it was, was it 2006? Yes, I am. I'm sorry. I'm, my Wi-Fi here in this small Texas town is not the best. Okay, <laughs> sorry. No, so I just, uh, I believe you retired in 2006. Is that correct? 2007. 2007. Okay, yes, so 2007, and where most people would be happy to ride off into the sunset and enjoy a well-deserved and happy retirement with your husband, who, by the way, did also become a chief, so a very successful family. And you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Mike's accomplishments as well. Just a, an amazing contribution by a family to the Border Patrol and to their country. But you decided, both of you, decided to stay in the Border Patrol's orbit and to continue to support and advocate for this Border Patrol that you that you loved and was such a big part of your life, you actually are very active in the Border Patrol Museum. And most people probably don't know that that even exists, but the United States Border Patrol is very lucky to have a museum. It's it's a separate entity unto its own, and, and it's, it's largely run by folks like you. But tell us a little bit about that. Well, thank you for that opportunity, Chief. Yes, I I should say that my husband, Mike, and I, uh, we were both chiefs in the field, and actually we were chiefs, sector chiefs at the same time. We're the, we're the only spouses to ever do that, and Another first. I'm very proud of him <laughs> for supporting me in, in that opportunity. And yes, and, and also, by the way, my father-in-law was in the 65th session. Wow. So we're a, we're a three- Three Border Patrol position family, and we have always, always thought, and we made a decision, as, as you might expect, when we could have just retired happily, and we are retired happily, but to support the Border Patrol Museum. And yes, the, our Border Patrol Museum is in El Paso, and it is a it is a privately funded organization. I think a lot of folks don't know that because a lot of times you hear the term national museum or U.S. 
uh, Border Patrol Museum when, in fact, we are not federally funded. Everything about the museum is from private donations. But this is why we feel so strongly about it. The men and women who have worn the Border Patrol uniform and continue to wear the Border Patrol uniform should be the ones telling our story. That is where our soul lives. I believe that the Border Patrol Academy is where our heart lives, and I believe that the Border Patrol Museum is where our soul lives. You can go there at any point, whether it's your second day or the day that you retire, and, and just know that you belong to something so much bigger with so, such rich history, and you know that when you go there, you're always going to be surrounded by memories and photos and conversations and colleagues that talk about the history that you are part of and all the things that the Border Patrol has been involved in that many, many people don't know from the civil rights movement, of course, to how pivotal we were in the actions that took place right after 9-11. I can't imagine our country without the Border Patrol, and I don't want to ever have to imagine our country without the Border Patrol. But it is, it's where our history lives, it's where our soul lives, and we are unconditionally supported to keeping that alive. And I can tell you just from experience, personal experience, every time I've been there a bunch, and every time I go in there, it's a, it gives me chills because it's like you're walking back in time and you're, and you're touching a piece of a, a piece of history that you are a part of. I, my class flag is one of the ones that hangs in the, uh, in the, on the roof inside the, uh, the Border Patrol Academy, and I still go and I look for it each and, each and every time. And, I, and as I walk around and I see some of the, uh, you know, the vehicles and some of the uh, articles, and, and it, uh, it harkens back to you know, my time you know, early on when I was starting. And I think that's, that's true for each and every one of us that, uh, that go there, that, that put this uniform on and, and wear this patch. It's something very special. And to have our history preserved by those that have worn the uniform just like us, I can't put into words what that means. And there's not many organizations, not many people that can boast that. And, well, there again, you and, and, and the other chief underdown, Mike, uh, have, have <laughs> been instrumental in helping to make sure that that stays the case. Uh, thank you so much for that. That's, uh, I can tell you from a lot of us, that means a lot. And I, and I take my family there every time I'm visiting El Paso, and I would encourage everybody to do the same thing. Well, that's fantastic to hear, Chief. And it's, it's our touchstone. I go there, and I remember so many people. Uh, it, is, it is a very moving experience, as I am sure you have had as well, to go into the memorial room where we remember all of our men and women who were lost. But that is, that's a sacred space to us. And uh, our museum, it's the only one in the country. It, it really is where we live. And the idea that we can go in there with our loved ones and share our history with us, to me, that's, the value of that is absolutely immeasurable. Well, I hope that that continues, Chief. I hope that each and every trainee has the opportunity to take their families and to see, get a firsthand account, actually touch part of the history that, uh, 
that makes up this organization for the better part of 100 years. We, we tell them that the, uh, that the academy is the home of the Border Patrol because we all start out here. And like you said, I think it's very apropos. The museum is our soul. It, it talks about uh, who we are and, and what we've done throughout history that would otherwise probably be forgotten. You mentioned what we've done in the civil rights era, and you mentioned all the things that we've done from stopping hijackings of planes and, and into the uh, terrorist attack after 9-11 the things that we've evolved and, and, and become uh, integral in, in preventing. It just, uh, it's something to see. It's one thing to talk about, one thing to hear about, but when you can actually see something tangible, these, these relics and these artifacts that you have there, it's just amazing. It's a look into our history that you cannot get anyplace else. Amen. Amen. Well, I tell you what, Chief, I, I just, I could go on and on for days, but I want to have you get the opportunity to talk to these men and women that, that are out in the field right now dealing with yet another uh, surge. Uh, there seems like there's always something going on in the lives of Border Patrol agents, and, and what uh, most other law enforcement organizations see as, uh, as a big deal becomes very much business as usual for us. We get used to being in the spotlight. We get used to, to dealing with uh, emergent situations. That's going on right now yet again for the men and women of the United States Border Patrol you have folks that are getting ready to graduate the academy and jump right out into it. How about some words of wisdom for them? Well, I would say this, and I, and I certainly have an appreciation for how difficult this is for our men and women in the field. To the folks who are about to graduate, you are about to become members of the most elite law enforcement agency on the planet. Be appreciative of that. Your country is appreciative of what you're doing. And to the the men and women in the field, you have incredible leadership right now. They are working very, very hard for you. This is a really difficult situation, Uh, not unique, but the circumstances are what they are. But I can absolutely assure you that these folks are working to resolve issues for you every single day. We are, we are the Border Patrol. We're going to handle this, and we're going to come out on the other side of it better and stronger than before. But this is one challenge, and that is what we were made to do. I have, I have complete confidence in our leadership and the capability of the men and women in the field. Ladies and gentlemen, that is Chief Lynn Underdown, one of the absolute treasures of the United States Border Patrol. And hearing her talk today, I think we can all see why. Chief, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the opportunity, Chief. I enjoyed it. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to do it for another episode of What's Important Now. Everybody stay safe out there. Difficult times. Stay the course. We'll get through it Till we talk again on our first.